Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Thank you for that introduction, Liz, and welcome to all our friends and to the podcast. Many of you are probably familiar with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Most people are familiar with him through his national radio program called Through the Bible. McGee was a popular Bible teacher because of his faithfulness to God's Word, along with his down-to-earth teaching style. His Texas drawl was instantly recognizable on the radio and As McGee was born and raised in Texas, that's the reason for that accent. What many people may not know is that McGee's alcoholic father was killed in a car accident, and not long after that, the family relocated to Nashville, where he was saved as a teenager. Later, he went to seminary in Georgia and then came back to Nashville and became a pastor. A few years later, he went to lead a church in Pasadena, California. After eight years there, he became pastor of the Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles. Dr. McGee's radio program began in 1967, teaching through the Bible in five years and inviting people to climb on board the Bible bus. At the end of those five years, that same program would just simply start over again. McGee passed away in 1988, but his radio program is still being broadcast today, though some people don't realize that McGee is in heaven right now. The other interesting thing about him is that if you listen to him on his radio program, well, he was gentle and calm when he spoke, almost with a grandfatherly tone of voice. But if you listen to his live sermons from the Church of the Open Door on Sunday mornings, my goodness, he was a fiery, take-no-prisoners type speaker in those services. So he was a gentle teacher, but a fiery preacher. As we come back to the seven churches in Revelation, we come now to the church at Philadelphia, which Jesus describes as the Church of the Open Door. Some 1,900 years before McGee's Open Door Church in L.A., there was this Open Door Church in Asia Minor. I even have to wonder if the name of that Los Angeles church was perhaps inspired by the words of Jesus here in Revelation chapter 3. Now, before we dive into our verses here, let's consider the background for this city uh, because it helps us to provide some key insights into the words and what Jesus was trying to say to this particular church. I would encourage you to make a mental note of these background points and then watch how they come back around. As the city was founded, the ruling king was named Eumenes, and he succeeded, uh, he was succeeded, I should say, by his brother Attalus. Because of the devotion between these brothers, the city was named Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. Another historical fact is that this city was devastated by a massive earthquake in 17 AD. That earthquake was so destructive that Rome suspended 
the taxes of that city for five years so they could in turn use that money instead to rebuild. And then if you were with us in our last podcast message, we talked about how Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism for quite a large portion of the first century. But as these uh, faithful followers of Jesus proclaimed the gospel of Christ, they were expelled and banned from attending services there in their local synagogues. The doors were closed to them, not just from a religious standpoint, but socially as well. Finally, the words of Jesus to this church include some of the clearest and most encouraging words in the New Testament about the teaching of the rapture. So let's dig in. We're going to pick up in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, but have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so this is our little mini-series uh, within the Revelation series. This is now part four of seven letters to seven churches. We're looking at the final two churches of the seven. Well, here now in verse 17, Jesus introduces himself as holy and true. In that first century culture, it was littered with hundreds of false gods, and here now is Jesus the true God, and therefore he is holy. Now back towards the end of chapter 1, we had read that Jesus has the keys of Hades and death, and you'll recall we talked about having the keys to something represents authority and control. Jesus conquered death through his resurrection, giving him authority over death and the grave. But here now, he also has the key of David. And the Old Testament explains to us that the house of David, along with the throne of David, has been established forever, meaning that they represent the rule and reign of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus will occupy the throne of David. Therefore, Jesus has authority over death, and Jesus has authority over eternal life. Jesus then identifies himself as the one who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I have to wonder if this was a subtle and encouraging way of Jesus telling those particular believers, I know you've been shut out of the synagogue and that the door has been closed to you, but I hold open the door of eternal life and no one will ever close that door on you. In the context here, having the key and authority over eternal life 
uh, Jesus holds open the door to salvation. In fact, in John 10, Jesus specifically said, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, they will be saved. From beginning to end in Scripture, God is inviting lost sinners to come to him for salvation. Here in verse 8 is Jesus always says to the churches, I know your works. Jesus knows the spiritual condition of every church and of every believer. In the case of this church, Jesus says that he knows they have a little strength, have kept his word, have not denied his name. Having a little strength is another encouraging way of Jesus telling them, I know you're weak, but listen, not weak in faith, but weak in strength. And this type of weakness is good because it makes us more dependent upon the Lord. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, my strength is made perfect in my weakness. Along with that, they were obedient believers who kept his word and faithful believers who had not denied his name, even in the face of persecution and opposition. As a result, Philadelphia was the faithful church. As I shared in the beginning of our little mini-series at the seven churches, every church today is represented by one of these seven churches, and every believer is a part of one of these churches. And so may our churches be like this one, the church at Philadelphia, faithful and obedient. Because of their faithfulness, Jesus set before them an open door that no one can shut. In this context, the open door was the opportunity for proclaiming the gospel. This is very much like what Paul had written to the church at Colossae when he said, pray for us that God will open up to us a door for the word. So again, this is the open door of gospel opportunity. In verse 9, Jesus says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Much like the unsaved Jews in Smyrna who were persecuting genuine believers there, these unsaved Jews in the area of Philadelphia were doing the same. So physically and culturally, yeah, they were Jews, but spiritually they were unsaved and therefore not Jews in the spiritual sense. Paul explains in Romans 2 that a true Jew is not merely one outwardly, but is the person who is converted and saved inwardly. You know, Abraham was the the father of the Jewish people, and they were descended from him physically, but Abraham was the friend of God, and he believed by faith. And that's why Paul explains that a true Jew is one physically and spiritually. Here's the distinction. There are physical Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, and then there are spiritual Jews, the spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. I know this would hurt the feelings of many Jewish people today, but God clearly states that a real Jew is not determined by ancestry or religious observances like circumcision, but rather by a genuine faith in God and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, all unbelievers belong to the synagogue of Satan, Jew or Gentile, and are the enemies of Christ. Then Jesus makes some striking promises to this faithful church. The first one is here in verse 9 in reference to those unsaved Jews who persecuted them. He says, indeed, I will come, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Exactly how this will unfold, I can't really tell you. 
But you know, there is a vivid picture of of these words of Jesus in the book of Genesis. Remember, the brothers of Joseph hated him and were jealous of him. At one point, they were even going to kill him, but at the last moment, they changed their minds and sold them into slavery and said instead, and then Joseph ended going down to Egypt. But God was with Joseph, and in the course of time, God elevated him to the second highest position in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then a famine struck the land of Israel, and those same brothers of Joseph were forced to travel down to Egypt in order to buy food to eat. Ultimately, they appeared before Joseph there in Egypt, bowing down before him. What we do know for certain, and as Philippians 2 describes for us, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The next remarkable promise, then, is found in verse 10, and this is a, an important one for us. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Listen, this is nothing less than a promise to the church that it will not go through the great tribulation period. We know this was not referring to some local trial just for those Philadelphian believers because Jesus spoke of the trial specifically, which will come upon the whole world. It is also clear that this trial lasts for a specific period of time. Jesus Jesus calls it the hour of testing, and that's not literally 60 minutes, but it means a specific period of time, and in this case, it is the seven-year tribulation. This text then, Revelation 3.10, is not only a strong verse about the rapture of the church, but listen, it's also a strong verse about the timing of the rapture. As you probably know, there are three positions on the timing of the rapture. Pre-tribulation position, meaning that the church is taken up to heaven before the tribulation period begins. Another position is the mid-tribulation rapture, meaning that the church goes into the tribulation and somewhere at the midpoint of the seven years, the church is taken up to heaven. And then the other position is called the post-tribulation rapture, whereby the church goes through the entire tribulation period and is then united with Christ at his second coming. Now, what will really help us with this discussion and with better understanding this 10th verse here in Revelation 3 is understanding the purpose of the rapture along with the purpose of the tribulation. For one thing, the rapture of the church is the event that will close the church age and then lead the world into the day of the Lord. The church age began with the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So when the rapture occurs, the church will be taken out of the world, and that event will close the church age. In other words, no more church on the earth, so no more church age. At that same time, the rapture of the church is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. There are no other prophecies or events that need to take place before the church is removed from the earth. It's imminent and could happen at any moment. The other main purpose of the rapture is to rescue and remove all genuine believers from the earth before the tribulation period begins. The tribulation is God's judgment upon an unsaved world, just like the global flood of Genesis was God's judgment 
at that time upon an unsaved world. In this context, God tells the faithful believers in verse 10, I will keep you from that hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now, the Greek word that's used there for keep, when Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, literally means from and out of. So Jesus is going to keep his church from his coming judgment and wrath and out of the coming tribulation. Notice there are two instances of the word keep here in verse 10. Because genuine believers have kept his word, Jesus will keep them from the time of judgment. In fact, what Jesus was saying to the believers in Philadelphia and to all faithful New Testament believers in all the age is that because they have already passed the test of remaining faithful, Jesus will spare them from the ultimate test of the tribulation period. So what is the purpose of the tribulation period? Again, this will be a period of God's judgment upon a rebellious and sinful world that has willingly rejected God and his gospel. It will be a time of punishment for rebellious sinners. Along with that, God will use the tribulation period to purify and save some of Israel. In this current church age that we're living in, spiritual blindness is keeping most Jewish people from believing in Jesus as Messiah. But during the tribulation, many of the Jews will have their eyes open and they'll recognize that the same Jesus that they pierced on the cross is indeed the Messiah and they will turn to him by faith. So the purpose of the tribulation includes conversion along with condemnation. Many of these facts about the rapture do not line up if you hold to a midpoint or post-tribulation position. In fact, those other positions undermine the biblical purpose for the rapture and for the tribulation. Revelation 3.10 strongly supports the pre-tribulation position. And I love how Jesus puts an exclamation point on it all in verse 11 saying, Behold, or pay attention, I'm coming quickly. Two things are certain. The Lord is coming back, and the Lord is coming back soon. Then Jesus says, hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. Hold fast means hold tight. And in this case, it just simply means hold tight to your faith. Otherwise, they might lose their crown. The Greek word for crown is stephanos, and it describes that laurel leaf crown that was awarded to athletes in ancient Greek sporting games. In the New Testament, there are different heavenly crowns that will be awarded to believers for their faithfulness. Therefore, as Jesus encourages these believers to persevere in their faith, he doesn't want them to lose their heavenly rewards. To the genuine believers, Jesus also promises to make them a pillar in the temple of God. You know, a pillar represents strength and stability. And I think this promise would not have been lost on those believers in Philadelphia who had experienced severe earthquakes. Then Jesus promises them and us a new name. In the Bible, God oftentimes gives his faithful people new names. We think of Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Peter and others. God will also give us a new and eternal name that will reflect his glory. Well, with that, then, let's take a peek at the seventh and final church as we resume our reading in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. 
I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To he who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, first off, Laodicea is the only church of the seven to get its name in the dictionary. Did you know that? If you go to Webster's Dictionary, Laodicean is a word and it's defined as a lukewarm, unenthusiastic Christian. So let's call this final church exactly what it was, the lukewarm church. Laodicea was founded by Antiochus II, a ruler who named the city for his wife Laodice. This city was very affluent, and because it was located on a major trade route, the economy was booming. It was also the banking center for the entire region. This area also produced a highly sought-after uh, sought wool, along with an eye salve that was exported to cities far away. So the portfolio of this community was not only diversified, it was quite prosperous. The Laodiceans were so self-sufficient that when a massive earthquake crippled their city in 60 AD, the community leaders told Rome, uh, thank you, but no thank you. We don't need your help or financial support to rebuild. We can do this ourselves. The city itself was located on a high plateau, adding to their sense of security and self-sufficiency. Now, not far from Laodicea were the neighboring two cities of Colossae and Hierapolis. So this all formed a tri-community area. And this explains why when Paul wrote his letter to the church at Colossae, we call it Colossians, he made that closing statement now, when this epistle is read among you, see to it that it's also read to the church of the Laodiceans. They were within 10 miles of each other. The only really regional problem that the Laodiceans had was no drinking water source of its own. So because of this, they built a pipeline that brought water in from miles away. Now, Laodicea was the southernmost city of the seven cities that we're looking at, so it was more of a hot weather region. And therefore, by the time that piped-in water reached their community, well, it was nauseatingly warm-tasting. Not only that, but it had these weird minerals in it that added to the bad taste of their water. In contrast, nearby Colossae received their drinking water from the melting snow of their local mountains, so they had cold, refreshing, great-tasting water. And the other city of the tri-community, Hierapolis, had natural hot springs, and that drew many people into their area for health reasons. The spiritual problem that the church at Laodicea had is that they were blind to uh, their spiritual condition, and they were apathetic and indifferent. 
Just like when they didn't need or want Rome to help them rebuild after the earthquake in AD 60, they brought that same self-sufficient attitude into their spiritual lives. That's very dangerous. Christians do this today. There's no indication of any idolatry or immorality going on, but they were spiritually lukewarm. Now, there's an ongoing debate uh, concerning the church at Laodicea. There are those who believe that this church was an apostate church filled with professing believers, but no genuine Christians. It was William Barclay who said, the very expression, a lukewarm Christian, is a contradiction in terms for a lukewarm Christian has no claim to being called a Christian at all. Well, then there are those who believe that while this church was in serious spiritual trouble, that many of the people there were actually believers. And if you go through this passage and look at it again, there are verses that support both views. So I think the natural conclusion is undoubtedly this church was filled with both types of people, those who professed Christianity but were unsaved, and those who were genuinely saved but were anemic in their faith. The Laodiceans were a little too cold to be hot and a little too hot to be cold, so they were lukewarm. They truly were a lukewarm mixture of hot and cold. This letter to Laodicea was the most severe of the seven, and Jesus does not give them a single word of praise. It's no surprise then that Jesus begins by identifying himself to the church as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This church was indifferent and apathetic, so Jesus calls himself the Amen and faithful, This church had lost its testimony, so Jesus calls himself the true witness. And then he describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God, which does not mean that Jesus was created. I don't care what the cults tell you. Uh, The word for beginning here simply means source, and so it's actually referring to Jesus as the creator, not something being created. At this point, then, Jesus leapfrogs past any words of praise and moves right into his accusation against this church. You're not cold. You're not hot. I wish you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Anytime I read those words, we can't help but think of Jonah, the lukewarm prophet that ended up being vomited from the mouth of a great fish or whale. One thing that I greatly enjoy in the mornings is my coffee. I love a piping hot cup of coffee. And then when the weather is hot, I also enjoy an iced coffee. But what I truly dislike is lukewarm coffee. To me, it's disgusting. Jesus feels the same way about our spiritual lives. He would prefer for these Laodiceans to either be cold or hot rather than being lukewarm. G. Campbell Morgan, the great British preacher, pointed out that lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. So these stunning words of Jesus means that a cold person, spiritually, who readily acknowledges that they're unsaved, actually has a better chance of getting saved than the lukewarm religious person who is unsaved but also trusting in a false sense of spiritual security. As he did before, Jesus uses descriptions which would be clearly understood by the congregation here in Laodicea. And so, as we discussed, there were the cold, refreshing mountain spring waters of Colossae, and there was the famous hot spring waters of Hierapolis, neither which was far away. 
But here in between was the city of Laodicea with its lukewarm waters. In verse 16, Christ's reaction to the lukewarm condition of this church was to say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And, you know, visitors coming through Laodicea in the first century would take a sip of the lukewarm drinking water and would immediately spit it out. The trouble at Laodicea can be summed up with two phrases. You say, and then the words, but you do not know. You say, I am rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing, but you do not know that you are poor, blind, and naked. How the Laodiceans saw themselves and the reality of their spiritual condition, well, was quite different. So in verse 18, Jesus counsels the church to do three things. Note this. First off, to buy gold from the Lord. This is referring to spiritual riches. They were that banking center there in the region, there in Laodicea, but they were spiritually poor. Secondly, they needed to receive the white garments of righteousness that Christ was offering them. They manufactured that special, highly sought-after wool there, and so the church thought it was nicely clothed. But Jesus says, spiritually, you're naked. Thirdly, Jesus counsels them to anoint their eyes with salve. The Laodiceans prided themselves on the eye salve that they manufactured and even exported, but spiritually, they were blind. In verse 19, in spite of this stern rebuke from the Lord, his words indicate that many of them were believers who needed correction, repentance. In verse 20, we have the amazing picture of Jesus standing outside of his church and knocking on the door to be let back in. Philadelphia was the church of the open door. Laodicea was the church of the closed door. Going back to verse 14, notice how Jesus addresses this congregation. Watch this carefully. He calls them the church of the Laodiceans rather than the church in Laodicea. You see, this is precisely why we find Jesus standing outside the door of this church and knocking for them to let him back in. It wasn't his church. It was their church. God help us that it would never become our church but always remain God's church. Notice that if these believers were to open the door, Jesus promised to come inside and dine with them. And to dine with someone in this first century culture was a sign of fellowship and intimacy. And, you know, oftentimes meals would last for hours. In many of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, we find him eating with his disciples. You might recall he ate dinner with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus when he got to their house. And then later on that same evening, he ate some fish and honeycomb in the upper room. And uh, weeks later, he was preparing fish and bread along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee for Peter, John, and some other disciples and so forth. And one day, we'll all sit down with Jesus at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. As believers then, which church best describes your and our own spiritual condition? Are we faithful, obedient, and looking for the soon return of Jesus like the church at Philadelphia? Or truth be told, are we more like the apathetic and indifferent folks at the church in Laodicea? Hey, if it's like Laodicea, Jesus says, repent and let me back into your life. If it's Philadelphia, Jesus says, hold tight to your faith. Either way, Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 